I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Ladies and gentlemen, James Elroy, David Van. T.S. Eliot wrote, In my end is my beginning, and in my beginning is my end. With this new novel, Perfidia, I am going back to the chronological genesis of my life's work as a historical novelist. Perfidia is the first volume of my second L.A. quartet. The original L.A. Quartet, four novels published between 1987 and 1992, set in Los Angeles between 1946 and 1958. The Black Dahlia, The Big Knower, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. I followed it up with the Underworld USA Trilogy, three novels published between 1995 and 2009, set in America between 1958 and 1972. American Tabloid, The Cold 6000, and Blood's a Rover. Perfidia is the first volume of the second Ellen Quartet. The design of this extended work is unprecedented. I'm taking characters from the first two bodies of work and placing them in Los Angeles during World War II as significantly younger people. And Sexton wrote, my friend, my friend, I was born doing reference work in sin and born confessing it. This is what poems are with mercy for the greedy. They are the tongue's wrangle, the world's pottage, the rat's star. Tonight you get the pottage. Tonight you get the wrangle. Tonight, motherfuckers, I am your rat and I will hit you to my star. Okay, cats, it's time for the reading. I'm going to read the prologue of Perfidia, a little bit of chapter two, after which David Van and I, also an American, also a Californian, he and I will be in scintillating, that's S-I-N, underlined, italicized, P-I-L-L-A-T-I-N-G, dialogue. Upon our completion, we would welcome the most invasively over-personal questions <laughs> that each and every one of you peepers, prowlers, pederasts, pens, panty sniffers, punks, and pimps ask for us. Fasten your seatbelts. Perfidia. Reminiscenza. I wandered off in a prairie blizzard 85 years ago. The cold rendered me spellbound, then to now. I have outlived the decree and find myself afraid to die. I cannot will cloudbursts the way I once did. I must recollect with yet greater fury. It was a fever then. It remains a fever now. I will not die as long as I live this story. I run to them to buy myself 
moments now. 23 days, blood libel, a policeman knocks on a young woman's door, murderer's flags a swirl. 23 days, the storm, Remanicenza. Chapter two, Kay Lake's diary, compiled and chronologically inserted by the Los Angeles Police Museum. Los Angeles, Saturday, December 6th, 1941, 11.23 a.m. I've begun this diary on impulse. An extraordinary scene unfolded as I sat on my separate bedroom terrace. I was sketching the southern view and heard the rumble of engines below me on the strip. I immediately got up and wrote down the precise time and date. I sensed what the rumble portended, and I was right. A line of armored vehicles chugged west on sunset to fevered scrutiny and applause. It took a full 10 minutes for the armada to pass. The noise was loud, the cheers louder. People stopped their cars to get out and salute the young soldiers. It played hell with the flow of traffic, but no one seemed to care. The soldiers were delighted by this display of respect and affection. They waved and blew kisses. A half dozen waitresses from Dave's Blue Room ran out and passed them cases of liquor. Somebody shouted, America. And that's when I knew. The war is coming. I'm going to enlist. I always do what I say I'm going to do. I formally state my intent and proceed from that point. I am going to write a diary entry every day until the present world conflict concludes or the world blows up. I will walk away from my easy existence and seek official postings near the front lines. I live a dilettante's life now. My compulsive sketch artistry is a schoolgirl's attempt to capture confounding realities. My piano studies, an emerging proficiency with the easier Chopin nocturnes, stall my pursuit of a true cause. This lovely home in no way allays my psychic discomfort. Lee Blanchard's indulgence is disconcerting more than anything else. This diary is a broadside against stasis and unrest. I have always felt superior to my surroundings. This house states the case most tellingly. I picked out every German expressionist print and every stick of blonde wood furniture. I'm a prairie girl from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and a gifted Aravist. I'm moving into my separate bedroom now. My own work is arrogantly displayed on the walls, interspersed with clay and Kandinsky. There are a dozen drawings of a light heavyweight named Bucky Bleichert. He has a hungry young man's body and large buck teeth. I have sketched him many times from ringside seats at the Olympic. Bucky Bleichert is a local celebrity who understands the ephemeral quality of celebrity and does not view boxing as a true cause. His circumspection in the ring delights me. I have never spoken to Bucky Bleichert, but I am certain that I understand him. Because I was a local celebrity once, it was February 39, I was 19, 
it all pertained to a bank robbery and its alleged solution. This house, a refuge a few years ago, a trap now. The robbery got me this house, not least prudently invested fight winnings. Lee Blanchard is not a savvy investor, as is commonly held, nor is he my lover in the common sense. He entered my life to facilitate my destiny, whatever that is. I know it now. Sioux Falls was an insufficient destiny. The winter cold spells and summer heat waves left people dead. Indians strayed from nearby reservations and stabbed one another in speakeasies. Klansmen broke a Negro man out of the county jail. He was accused of raping a dim-witted white girl. The Klansmen convened a kangaroo court. The girl was slow to condemn or exonerate the man accused. The Klansmen staked him over a red ant hill in mid-August. The summer sun, or the ants, killed him. Local lore was divided on this. Protestants despised the few local Catholics. Nativist groups flourished throughout the Depression. Methodists were at odds with Lutherans and Baptists and vice versa. A range war over prize cattle broke out in 34. Fourteen men were killed near the Iowa state line. My parents and older brother were sweet-natured and content. Their only sin was lack of imagination. I pretended to be one of them in order to live within myself unobstructed. I lived to read, draw, and roam. People talked about me. I dropped racy bon mots in church. I did not care about my family. The fact mildly horrified me. I wanted to run away to Los Angeles and become someone else there. I got a job at a bookstore and stole a month's worth of cash receipts. I left my parents a perfunctory note of farewell. It was November 36. I was 16. The bus ride west featured dust storms and a flash flood near Albuquerque. Armed goons were stationed at the California border. They were charged to keep indigent Okies out. They were moonlighting L.A. policemen and a potent view of my destiny. That armored convoy is now passed out of range. That motorized rumble has now left my body. Nothing before this moment exists. The war is coming. I'm going to enlist. Great. Thank you. How are you, brother? (laughs) Good. It's a great book. Uh, It's immense. I think what impresses me about it most is the characterization. Uh, There are four main characters and arguably a fifth with Claire and uh, a huge cast of of supporting characters who come to life really vividly at various times. Like uh, One of the ones I noted was Andrea Lesnick, page 373. Um, Not a major character in the novel, but for those two pages, she really burns. I mean, she really pushes one of the characters and is smart and memorable, and all the characters are like that throughout the book. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, what I, what I think I like about the most is that they seem like characters from Greek tragedy in that they're acting unconsciously and out of control. They don't really know fully why they're doing what they're doing. So there are a lot of questions about all of them, uh, questions they have for themselves, questions we have beyond what they're aware of of themselves. And uh, I thought, since you read the section from uh, Kay Lake's diary, 
maybe we could start with Kay, what it was okay. like writing her. It seems like maybe that was a departure in some ways from earlier books, and uh, she's this complex, interesting character, and what was that like writing her? Kay Lake is the female lead of my much earlier written but latter set novel, The Black Dahlia. We're never in her viewpoint. Kay Lake goes on near the end of The Black Dahlia to marry Bucky Bleichert, the young boxer that she's obsessed with back in 1941 when she's 21 years of age. We're never in Kay's viewpoint in The Black Dahlia, hence one can conclude that Kay never told Bucky Bleichert of the crazy shit she did during World War II. So I had narrative wiggle room in my design to create a seamless verisimilitude. Eleven novels, seven previously published, this new quartet, a fictional history of my city, L.A., my country, America, between 1941 and 19. 72. She's been kicking Kay Lake around in my head. Mm-hmm. She's brilliant. She's madcap. She's in way over her head. She's a close horse. She's libidinous. She's full of shit. She's brave beyond words. She is the indomitable spirit of the World War II American woman. <laughs> she is all of that. I mean, that. That is a fantastic thing about reading the novel, that the initial perceptions I had of characters really shifted and changed over time. I mean, they really, they grew and surprised me. And one of the things that surprised me was that it becomes a love story by the end. I mean, the very end, it's a, it's a love story between Kay and, uh, and Bill Parker. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, somehow I hadn't, when I picked up your book, I hadn't thought love story. And there are two love stories in here. There's actually a, a really lovely one with... Uh, uh, Dudley and Claire also. So um, so how does the love story fit into all this? And What I do, my metier, is the secret human infrastructure of large public events. I get to rewrite history to my own specification. Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. American authorities unjustly imprison hundreds of thousands of largely innocent Japanese Americans in a time of patriotic fervor, and racial animus. I get to beat the shit out of perverted suspects in 1941 L.A. with a phone book. Whack, 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 whack. I get to kill people. I get to be there when Dudley Smith uh, 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 pours the pork to screen legend Betty Davis. I get to smoke opium in the basement of Ace Kwan's Chinese pagoda, and no one gets hurt. It's a benign form of megalomania. (laughs) Perfidia is a historical romance. It describes history as a state of yearning. Yearning is the chief fount of my inspiration. It's yearning for history itself. It's yearning for the big love story couched within history. If my love stories, chiefly, and you're correct to point that out, and my fictional characters comporting with real-life characters are plausible to you, then you will go for my threadbare research and my recrafting of history to my own specifications. The next question should be, how do I get there? How do I get there? It's a 700-page outline. That was the next question about the research. I knew it was. Because, because it seems like it's more than just research for a book or a series of books. It must be a lifelong obsession. I mean, because it's, it, it's so dense and rich in, in cultural, historical detail. How is it that you get that? How do you, how do you know you've gotten it right or, or right enough? Or? I'm a confident motherfucker. There's, <laughs> there's that. I'm a hard worker. And I trust my ability to extrapolate. For example, I hire researchers who compile fact sheets and chronologies for me so that I won't write myself into basic error. This book, 700-page novel, in real time, takes place between the 6th of December, the day before the Pearl Harbor attacks, and the 29th of December, 23 days. The 23 days that Kay Lake references Mm -hmm. in her introduction there. 
It's largely the story, this novel Perfidia, of the grave injustice of the Japanese internment. Hence, my basic research was of the first month of the internment. I was gratified to learn upon getting the research to learn that the first months of the roundups of the alleged Japanese subversives was chaos. Was haphazardly implemented. Nobody knew what they were doing. What did this allow me? Greater latitude mm -hmm. to fictionalize. That's what I'm looking for. The point in time where there's the black hole where I can just make this shit up. <laughs> Which is why it has the F for fiction on the spine. <laughs> well, it's it's uh it's definitely compelling and. I love that it's set in those 23 days because uh, it never gets slack. You don't pull away and wonder, you don't pull away 10 years and then wonder, well, why did I just invest all this time in characters and events and now I'm pulled away from that? Uh, it, it all feels uh, current. All the stories overlap. Um, and so my next question is actually about how, how you do all that plotting. <laughs> like, I, I, I just, I've never done anything like that. I don't quite understand. Um, how to do it. it. By the end of this book, there have been all these different narratives and all these questions and mysteries that you've become engaged in. And they actually do come together in this incredible way where there, there are no red herrings. There's nothing that doesn't fit. It actually all does uh, come together. And even more impressively, much of it was motivated from character, from the flaws of who these people are, from their uh, making decisions too quickly about a, a way to do something from their underestimating each other, all of that. But uh, how is it? How is it that you get all of that to to hold together? I mean, is that? It, I, I, I guess it's the outlines, but I, I guess I'd like to hear what it's like to do that because I've I've never even imagined doing anything like that. I hate irony. I hate minimalism. I hate nihilism. I love plot. I love story. I love motivation. I love deep motherfucking characters who are engaged in the process of attribution of meaning. I dislike rock and roll with a vengeance. I like, I like symphonic music. I like big novels. I like long movies. I don't like anything small. I don't like anything <laughs> witty, deft, frivolous. <laughs> I like big, 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 big shit. So when it came time for me to fulfill God's mandate for me, which is to write novels, I started plotting and I started writing big outlines. While I was writing The Black Dahlia, the first novel of the L.A. Quartet, which is modest compared to the books that follow it, I knew I would write the big nowhere next. On a cold, snowy winter night in New York, I'm a kid writer 30 years ago, I had an epiphany. All of LA Confidential, the beats of the story, not every last detail came to me. I knew this is the third book of the LA Quartet. In the wake of the epiphany, here's what I realized. Whatever I can conceive, I can execute. It was the most revelatory meaning possible. It was the most revelatory moment of my career. It wasn't winning a big award or hitting any kind of bestseller list. It was, oh shit, you can do this. Thus, I've conceived on larger and larger, grander and grander, and with LA Confidential, more and more intimate scales. The outline for that book, which resulted from all my research, my extrapolative notes, 300 pages of notes on character and plot and World War II itself as a character, it gave me a 700-page outline wherein every single thing that has to happen in the book is laid out. Now, I don't type. I've written all 19 of my books by hand. I've never been on a computer. I don't have a cell phone. I'm a mm -hmm. refugee 
from the digital edge. This has allowed me to think mm -hmm. and to sustain concentration grandly, I believe. Paradoxically, when you have a superstructure this minutely detailed from which to craft an enormous, densely populated novel, paradoxically, it also allows me to live in the immediate language and extrapolate ad lib within the individual scenes as long as it doesn't contradict the overall design of the outline. It's 10 months of my life door to door, the note taking and outline writing that I have it all typed up. My American and my British publisher read it and offer comments. From there, it's there like this on my desk, where the white notebook paper and the black pen to write with and the red pen to correct with are there. I just have to follow the diagram and think. Wow. Wow. You can do it. That's, that's an intense process. <laughs> but do you want to? <laughs> yeah, and, and what does it give to you? What, what does writing give to you? Great homicide detectives are largely men and women with chaotic inner lives and they need to impose order on the external, the great murder case. I must write novels. I write television shows and movies that by and large don't get made for an ancillary income. I've written two memoirs. I've done journalism. I've written short stories. But the novel is what thrills me, what jazzes me, what drives me, what moves me. It's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it's Bruckner's Ninth Symphony, it's Wagner's Tristan and Asalda, it's Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony. That's the shit that I love. And that's what God has permitted me to do. And I write from a sense of awe, I write from yearning, and it's like I'm an eight-year-old kid, friendless, as it was in my case, mm -hmm. and all I lived to do was read. And what did I learn? Mm -hmm. A big, fat fucking novel with some adult sex shit laced <laughs> in, and a big eight, nine hundred pager, like James Jones's novel From Here to Eternity, about the U.S. Army at the time of Pearl Harbor. I knew that fucker would take me one entire summer vacation, mm -hmm. and it did. I read Raintree County because I was flipping through my mother's copy once, 1,200 pages, and it had the line that I just happened on. <laughs> His naked form had touched her own. And I knew that that was some racy shit. <laughs> the boring... 1147 pages <laughs> that followed within inexplicable detail on rural Indiana in the 19th century. <laughs> but I lived in hope, and it got me through the summer of 1957 with two weeks of spare. That's it, it's the novel. I can do this. <laughs> there's, there's actually not that much sex in your book. Um, there's some, and, and there's more kind of love and relationships, like love stories that are forming. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, there is uh, a fair amount of violence. Uh, I always get accused of be writing violent and dark books, which I feel are not violent and dark. And I think it'd be a mistake to think of this as, as um, to dismiss it as a book of violence or to think that any of it is in there um, you know, without uh, good solid reason. Um, but I think it's interesting the role of violence, and so I'm wondering what your view of that is, uh, what what it adds to the shape and meaning of the book, like the effect on an audience, like why is it that we write violence? What, what are we doing when we do that? We were talking in the green room before the show here. I have, if Mr. Van writes novels that by and large do not contain quotation marks. I, f I find this shocking and <laughs> appalling, and it's why I never read William Faulkner because there's no quotation marks. It's why I think Cormac McCarthy is a jerk-off and completely full of shit. There's no fucking quotation marks. I have read 
to the exclusion of most of the American masters and British masters, crime fiction almost exclusively. I've read a lot of political biography, political history, true crime books, but I've read crime fiction and popular novels almost exclusively. And so when it came time to write Brown's Requiem, my first book, well, big fucking surprise, it was a crime novel. So what I've gone on to do in my own big way is merge with the L.A. Quartet, the crime novel and the historical novel, the Underworld USA Trilogy, the crime novel, the historical novel, and the political novel. And now, in the second L.A. Quartet, I am creating a series of historical romances. Just as Beethoven revolutionized music, the symphony orchestra expanded the political content, the spiritual content, the metaphysical content of music was changed forever. Then, as far as the novel of realistic intrigue is concerned, I'm out to become Beethoven. I'm out to crash all gates. I'm out to burn down all fields reconstruct, deconstruct, and plow new ground as far as anything along the lines of the Hardwell novel, the noir novel, the espionage novel, the political novel, the historical novel, and the crime novel are concerned. I have only one rival at this, even though our writing is dissimilar in the extreme. If one of, if, okay, can you guess who it is? The person is living. If you can guess who this person, my rival, for the great writer across all genres of violent intrigue is, I will give you a free copy of Perfidia <laughs> that I will buy here. Who is it? Yes, woman over here. I don't know if he's still alive. No. Don DeLillo's uh, arty-farty mainstream. <laughs> Who's a great, a great, great influence on me. Yeah, man over here. No. He's British. Come on. It's John le Carre. There will never be a writer on espionage. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ...to exceed John Lacare, David Cornwell, who's 83 years old. God bless him. I hope he's doing well. He could give me a hair transplant. I could use one. He's, he's quite the gent from everything I've been told. Put all that aside. There will never be James Elroy, as far as the Hardwell novel is concerned. So... Mr. Cornwell, Elroy, 
I'm out to push him out. I'm younger, I'm taller, I'm better looking, I'm more vigorous. What can I say? I'm an American, I think this way. You must win. Uh, what about music? You've mentioned music a few times, yeah. and uh, the musical piece, Perfidia, uh, plays throughout the book. Yeah. Is, it, is it a form of inspiration? Uh, what's the role it has in the story? Perfidia is a plaintive big band tune. It's a he done me, she done me wrong song. Uh, you've all heard it. And now my heart cries out, Perfidia, for I found you the love of my life. In somebody else's arms. It's a great song. It describes the inner lives of the main characters who are dipshit Americans in love with more than one person at a time in Los Angeles in the month of Pearl Harbor. Perfidia means perfidy or betrayal in Spanish. And it's a plaintive horn dog love star. Because Pearl Harbor was bombed and Los Angeles was under eminent fear of Japanese and air attack, and we could have been next. So love now. That is a message of perfidia. You must love urgently now. Um, shifting a little bit uh, to your style, you, you've described your style as punching you in the nards. <laughs> It's a series of statements, uh, very emphatic. Um, and I read on Wikipedia, so it must be true, uh, that it came from having to cut 100 pages from LA Confidential, that that was sort of a genesis for the style. I'm just curious how you think about the style and this where it came from. This book is not written in that style. It's concise mm -hmm. by any and all standards, but it's not hyper-abbreviated in the matter of LA Confidential, mm -hmm. white jazz and the Colt 6000. Mm -hmm. But it's still, it's a series of statements. I did find it's really emphatic. I mean, because yes. a paragraph will make four or five statements that could each be the first statement at the beginning of a paragraph. And it, yes. there's an insistence in that. There's no semicolon. There are semicolons in K. Lake's text, mm -hmm. which is in the first person and differentiated mm -hmm. from the subjective third person male viewpoints in this mm -hmm. book. The dialogue, however, is encapsulated, brother, in quotation marks, and sounds fair like enough, fair enough. people talking. The style of white jazz, LA Confidential, and the Colt 6000 was hyper-abbreviated. The editor who said, listen, cut 140 pages or we won't publish your book, got me to introduce that style. As it happened, it worked for LA Confidential and white jazz, American tabloid, which followed after the quartet, mm -hmm. was written in a more normal but still concise style, mm -hmm. like this book here. And then I went back to that style for mm -hmm. the Cold 6000, my story of the nervous breakdown, which was American 1960s. Mm -hmm. But I'll never use that style again. And what's coming next? What's the next book like? It's the second book of the second L.A. Quartet. <laughs> Heinemann will publish in two and a half years. It's not in real time. It goes from New Year's Eve, 1942. Count Basie is playing the LAPD Detective Bureau's party. He was coerced into this gig because some LAPD goons caught him with reefers outside the Club Alabama in South Central L.A. And his options were six months in the honor farm with the Klan guards there, poking him in the ass periodically with pitchforks, or play the LAPD New Year's Eve party and pick up a couple of hundred bucks. He's there. Salvador Dali's pet leopard, who appears notably at a party at Kwan's Chinese Pagoda, and in fact, Nasha's spare ribs off Count Basie's plate, is also praised. Parenthetically, you get to live, if you write these books, or I write these books, I get to leave this shit. I get to, I'm there. I'm there. There's the leopard. 
and he's eating the spare ribs. And I get to go from, hey, baby, you're shaking. Yeah, you look good, baby. Come here. Give me some pot, baby. Yeah. And he goes, oh, all right. You're my main man. You're my Ichiban. Scratch him behind the ears. And if you're willing to risk your life to pet a leopard, come on. Let it ride. You get to live it. That's it. You get to live it. You get to be there the month of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. In large part, that's why I do this show. Well, I'm to the point now on the clock where I'm supposed to open it up to audience questions. And I imagine uh, there are quite a few questions and fans, so um, ask away. He said you could ask anything. <laughs> yeah, in, in Love's Rover, you take up to 1972. Right. Is there anything about the succeeding decades that you find less interesting, <clears throat> more bloodless, and just less enthralling for you? From the period you I lived through it. It was a time of my great cognizance, 1972. I turned 24 that year. It doesn't vibrate my vindaloo, daddy-o. I just don't dig it. When J. Edgar Hoover shuffled off this mortal coil in May of 72, that was it. I'm going back. Bill Parker was one of my favorite characters in the book. And um, he felt quite personally written. He sort of struggles with alcoholism. He's obsessed with a photograph who, the description of whom sounds just like the picture of your mother in the Hillica Curse book. So I just wondered what, why you singled him out for kind of maybe some special treatment. Or William H. Parker was the greatest American policeman of the 20th century. He's a fictional character in Perfidia, 1941 finds him 39 years of age at extreme loose ends in his marriage, obsessed with a tall, red-haired woman who looks just like my mother, who was at Northwestern University getting her biology degree when the real-life William H. Parker was there attending a traffic cop seminar in 1940. So that's a good catch on your part. And yeah, that's great. That's you should just come up here and do this mother, job. <laughs> Once removed as the voice of the American woman during World War II. William H. Park, a Roman Catholic in a Protestant police department. Big battle with the booze. The grandson of a Union Army colonel and United States congressman who drank himself to death. As it happened, Parker was from Deadwood, South Dakota. Kay Link, exposited in the Black Dahlia, was from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, on the opposite side of the state. In reality, Parker took over the LAPD, reformed it from the ground up in 1950, stayed on as chief until 1966. After the 1965 Watts riot, he was dying of congestive heart failure, long battle with the booze had taken a heavy, heavy toll on him. He made three intemperate, racially tinged remarks that have besmirched his reputation forever, and unjustly so. Again, William H. Parker, yeah, he's entirely personal with me, and I love him dearly. And I'm out to redress the imbalance of opinion levied against him in the media and in history. You're welcome. Um, well, we've talked about Bill Parker and Kay Lake earlier, and no disrespect to Hideo Ishida, but certainly when I got a few chapters in, discovering that the next chapter was going to be Dudley Smith was quite mm -hmm. a, a woe moment. I'd like to, I wonder if you could say a few words about what it was like to write from his perspective finally after his yeah. kind of repeated appearance in the previous subsequent quartet. Dudley Smith is the overarching villain of the first L.A. Quartet, the, the concluding three volumes, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. He was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1905. Okay, what kind of fictional latitude does this give me if I don't contradict anything in the much earlier written but latter set books? Well, if you're born in 1905 and British soldiers killed your father and brother, you might be taking pot shots at the black and tans for the Irish citizens' army. Guess who else 
he may have rubbed shoulders with. I'm not saying that he did or that he didn't, but he's fictional, frankly. Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., the dad of the 35th president of the United States, just happened to be an Irish American who may or may not have financed Irish nationalist causes. Well, who was born in 1924 in Metro, Massachusetts, adjoining Boston, when Dudley Smith was 19 years of age? Elizabeth Short, the black dahlia, could, is it possible, the 18-year-old Dudley Smith have had an affair with Mrs. Phoebe Short, and could Betty Short be the issue of it, and could she have washed up to see her, well, covertly acknowledged dad, Dudley Smith, in L.A. for Christmas 1941. This is how you put this shit together. So there's Dudley. Have you read the book, brother? Yeah. Okay, come on. You learn some good shit about Dudley, don't you? Yeah. yeah. He's got some rough edges, doesn't he? Yeah. Now, he's an amazing character. I, I loved his uh, kind of uh, his poetic sermon, uh, page 575. But uh, anyway. Kudos to Shakespeare. The bay trees in our country are all withered, and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth. And lean-looked prophets whisper fearful change. That's Richard III. Let's see, come on. It's a Shakespeare test. (laughs) Perdition catch my soul, for I do love her. Othello. Okay. I am but mad north by northwest. When the wind is southerly, I know a hawk from a handsaw. Hamlet. There you go. That's correct. Yeah, his his sermon is a gas. He's quite mad. There's a lot of animal lore and canine lore in this book. I love dogs. And Dudley Smith once conversed with a wolf on the Irish moors. They shared their life history in snarls. There are nights, and there have been nights for me, when the wolves are silent and only the moon is talking. <laughs> Dudley is back in the second book. Of the yeah. Yeah, 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 he's the one who I was most captivated by in this book. I just thought he was, a, he was an amazing, amazing creation in this book. Other questions? Does this feel at all like going back to an earlier body of work like... Uh, a musical artist going back to greatest hits, did you have to justify yourself with that at all? Did you have to think twice about going back to these? No. The grand design of the second L.A. Quartet is to link the original L.A. Quartet and the Underworld USA trilogy so there is an entirely seamless and synchronous 11-book whole to my career as a historical novelist. That was it. Yes, I wanted to live with them. Were there commercial concerns here? None whatsoever. I wanted to write these books for posterity so that they will stand as one gargantuan reading experience. I think for most writers, their books do fit together thematically and such. Their overlaps... um, it's kind of great to consciously have that in mind that they will all connect. That seems like an advantage. Um, I wanted to just insert uh, one question. You write about such big topics, uh, you know, the biggest historical events mm-hmm. in American history, um, and you talked about the opportunities those, pro- those provide, like in that first month when everything's messy, no one knows what they're doing. Right. Um, and I can see that's, that's fantastic as an opportunity. But what kind of pitfalls are there from writing about such big events or, or challenges? What What are the hard parts about writing about big events that everyone thinks that they know a lot about? There's no downside to any of it. And again, I'm looking to extrapolate. I want to give you the love story. I want to give you the intimate, personal tableau juxtaposed against history. The detail work on Perfidia was immense. For example, 
there were blackouts. There were blackouts with looting, arson, race riots in the middle of them, and they all have to be recounted and recounted accurately. People are staying up around the clock. They're drinking, they're chain smoking, they're using drugs, they're having adulterous liaisons. And this is, of all my books, the most compressed time frame and the most detailed novel. And it was a feat of construction more than anything else. The new novel, which will go through the summer of 1942, will be nowhere near as compressed, won't be told in real time. It will be just as complex, and it will have a new construction challenge to it. I want to create, and I'm only going up against myself here, the largest, most densely populated, detailed homicide investigation in fictional history. And I'm going to do it in this second book, which, if anything, might be 50 or 75 pages longer than Perfidia. Wow. It's construction for me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the challenge. But I still live with that 1985 epiphany, whatever I can conceive, I can right. execute. Yeah, that's great. Another question? Just um, thinking about your comment about reading a lot of crime fiction, and a lot of crime fiction deals a lot with archetypes, so the middle-aged detective with mm-hmm. one or two idiosyncrasies and a problem with alcohol and is a bit of a maverick, uh-huh. or a woman uh, found who must be avenged by two detectives. Are those archetypes things you're conscious of and you try to veer away from when you write? My first novel was a private eye novel. It was largely autobiographical. I used to repossess cars. This private eye was a repo man, country club golf caddies. I was working as one at the time. And after finishing the book, My Love of Classical Music, His Love of Classical Music, I realized that private eye novels were bullshit. And as Ed McVeigh, Evan Hunter, ruminated on in one of his 87th Precinct books, the last time a private detective investigated a homicide was never. <laughs> and I'm conscious of the archetypes. I know them very well, but I've gone somewhere else. Someone else? Good, yeah. yeah. You talked about inserting real-life characters into your mm-hmm. fiction. Do you ever hear from the families or the estates of the people involved? No, because they have no legal recourse. If a person's dead, you can write whatever you want to about them. I meant more just general feedback. No, legal recourse. no I never have. Um, I turned up alive once. I got sued for libel. And actually, a little bit related to that, maybe not a lot related, but uh, there are all these collaborations in the book between different ends of the political spectrum, which I found really fascinating um, and cause for a lot of libel and stuff. But but, um, what um, I'm just curious to hear more about that from you, the the left and the right ending up having... Uh, similar interests or looking the same in some ways or being willing to put aside their political ideas and work together because they can make some money. Um, or vouch racial, racial purity mm-hmm. with the eugenicist left-wing head shrinker mm-hmm. who wants to build sturdy bodies across all racial lines. And then you've got the Nazis in there mm-hmm. that want to build the Nordic Superman. Yeah. Well, okay. One of two things are at play here. This is some truly interesting revelatory shit, or I made it up. (laughs) Your call. (laughs) What's interesting about the whole clusterfuck of the left and the right was the extent to which the monstrous Adolf Hitler and equally monstrous Josef Stalin were in bed together in the 1930s up to the fateful day of June 22nd, 1941, when Hitler violated the Russian-German pact and sent his boys into Russia, which was a big, 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 big mistake. And eugenics features quite a bit in the, in the book. Yeah. Um, and is it, does it link in some ways um, 
in some way larger to themes and such that you're developing in the book? Is it just just characterization, essentially, that it's the obsession of a few of the characters? Well, the world was alive with racial animus Mm -hmm. in 1941, and we're dealing with the specific injustice of the Japanese internment, which, dare I say, was little e compared to the Holocaust and the Soviet Gulag. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, a big black eye Mm -hmm. on the face of America. People had the craziest fucking beliefs back then. Shockingly, casually, petulantly expressed. Anti-Semitism, for one thing. Mm -hmm. No genocide in America. Petulant expressions of anti-Jewish sentiment on the floor of the United States Senate and across the radio airwaves routinely. Mm -hmm. Nut guys like, frankly, Charles Lindbergh believed that Jews... Russian Jews in particular, created both the Soviet hierarchy and Wall Street, mm-hmm. which seems like quite a contradiction to me. People <laughs> believed in the nuttiest shit. Yeah. People did the most vile things in the name of racial purity. Who have you got? Who can we hate? And will it be good for business? Mm-hmm. I'm out to draw the arrow. Right. Yeah, and it's really... In the most it, blunt... Yeah. Casual language. And it is awesome. really uncomfortable in the book when you're reading along, like all the racial slurs, all of the, the those things that are happening. And, and it's all um, uh, it's all exposed, of course. Uh, it, it's a very, as you said, a, a really uncomfortable time uh, in American history. So I thought the book was great for all that. I had yeah. never I, I'd never had such an uncomfortable experience with thinking about all that. Um, and in the end, it 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 uh, it seems. Uh, well thought about. But come on, brother, didn't you want to go back and spend time at Kwan's Chinese Pagoda <laughs> with Dudley Smith, Uncle Ace Kwan, go to that party? Th- okay, there's four party scenes in this book because, you know, Pearl Harbor was bombed, we could be next. And you got to live. You got to live. You got to let it all hang out. And really, my characters have a lot to hang out. There's four party scenes, two at the home of leftist socialite Claire de Haven. One, the gangster Bugsy Siegel's get-out-of-jail party. He killed the guy to, to secure his release from the L.A. County Jail on murder charges. So there's a great party on the Sunset Strip. Then there's the key party at Kwan's Chinese Pagoda with the great African-American band leaders Duke Ellington and Count Basie, and the leopard snark in the ribs off Count Basie's plate. And, okay, for those of you Roman Catholics here in the audience, Archbishop J.J. Campwell, the Irish-born Archbishop of the L.A. Diocese, he's there, and Big Stan Kenton, who wrote Artistry and Rhythm, and Eager Beaver, he's there, and Joan Crawford, she's there, and Betty Davis, she's there, and a lot of characters from the book are there, and Clark Gable is there, and he's hawking a picture of Tyrone Power with a dick in his mouth. Come on, you know you want to see the picture, and you know you want to pet the fucking leopard. <laughs> and you know you want the ribs and the opium and the big H and the weed and the booze, right? right. And you want to jive and bullshit and show how you enlightened are by talking to Duke Ellington, telling him how much you enjoyed Take the A Train and Caravan and all those great hits in 1940. You want to be there, right? Yeah. And you, and you want to go out with Dudley and his boys and Shanghai some poor Japanese-American motherfucker who never did you dirt. And you want to kick the shit out of him with a phone book and frame him for a crime he did not commit, right? Come on. It is strange. It, it is quite strange. I do. How... Um, how charming Dudley is. I mean, he's the most brutal man in this book. But he's really, like, toward the end of the book, I came to like him more and more. He's uh, very good. In his to interactions Dudley. with yeah. uh, Hideo and, and, um, and in his uh, interactions with Claire and, and in, in many different scenes, he became enormously likable. He's very thing. nice to Betty Davis's dog. Yeah. He's always kissing. The, it. He's always kissing the dog <laughs> on the snout. 
It's a good-looking Airedale. British breed, I might add. Also might add that this book is pro-Britain. Winston Churchill said, you can trust America to do the right thing. After it's tried everything else. And he was talking to Len Lace and America dragging its heels about getting into the war until the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But it's not one of these books like Herman Woke, who's going strong. He'll be 100 next year. Herman Woke, mm-hmm. God bless him. With the Winds of War, marvelous novel, War and Remembrance. That's one of those books where Pug Henry, the naval officer hero, he meets, now dig this, he personally meets and breaks bread with Franklin D. Roosevelt, Wendell Wilkie, Thomas E. Dewey, Eleanor Roosevelt, Adolf Hitler, Charles Lindbergh, Hermann Goering, who else? Reinhard Heydrich, Joseph Stalin. F- yeah, FDR, I already said that. It's not very convincing. I'm not going to do any shit like Eleanor Roosevelt has a walk-on right, in this book. Yeah. But none of that. Yeah, there are comments about her sexual preferences. Mm-hmm. And... That's, that's When I was a kid, and all you had to do was say, Eleanor Roosevelt, and someone said, Lesbo. It was reflexive and immediate. Yeah. I was curious to know, um, is there, what's the status of this long-delayed American tabloid adaptation? Um, last I heard, James Franco's involved. Is that still on the go? <laughs> he, was, he was just here a few days ago in London. Right? Yeah, giving uh, a signing. Yeah? Did you go? No. Okay, I don't either. <laughs> it's a bunch of bullshit. There will never be American tabloid on cable TV. HBO owns it outright. They paid me out over and out. Over now. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, James Franco is on the dole. He's over at the council flat or the DOS house right now. <laughs> I read uh, recently that you um, really dislike David Simon's The Wire. Um, I just wondered whether that was true or whether you've read his books, because your, your approaches strike me as quite similar. You sort of get very immersed in it's quite a journalistic approach. No, no. I watched three episodes of The Wire. I thought it was bullshit. I like what David Milch said about The Wire. It's a thousand miles wide and an inch deep. Um, I guess he's seen them all, probably. Yeah. I have to admit, I gave up after a season two. I didn't see what why everyone loved it so much. But yeah. anyway, yeah. what do I don't know? Yeah. I think you, you do know something. Question? You're a knowledgeable motherfucker, but you don't use quotation marks, I know, I know, I know. which invalidates your career and your life. The funny thing is, we were talking earlier, my novel that comes out in March, Aquarium, I had, I had last minute, I had thought, I thought I wanted to add quotation marks, and I asked my publisher, but it was too late, because it was already in proofs, and it would have had to be hand-added each one. I, I did repent in that way, perhaps. I've always liked no quotations before that, though. And Go ahead. Hi. So right. I finished your book. I loved it. And it's going to be another couple of years till the next one comes yeah. out. So what's your on your recommended reading list for Christmas? Have you read the other books? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here's what you so, read. So you're like the best audience member ever. Here's what you read. You read Thomas Mallon's novel, Watergate. Tom Allen's a good friend of mine. We're doing an event in Washington next month. Tom is the great living American historical novelist. He wrote Fellow Travelers, Henry and Clara, Mrs. Payne's Garage, Dewey Defeats Truman, and most notably, Watergate. Tom and I share the same metier, the secret human infrastructure of large public events. If you've ever wanted to know what happened between the planning for the Watergate break-in, up through Richard Nixon's resignation, two years and two months, door-to-door, and then the long-standing aftermath. If you want to know that, you want the brief on this big event in American history, read Watergate, and it has a heartbreaking love story at the core of it. Tom's new novel, Finale, will be published next fall in America, it's called Finale. It is about Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev at Reykjavik and the winning of the Cold War. 
Well, we've come to the end of our time. Um, Does anybody want to ask the great metaphysical question, why do you write? Why do you write? <laughs> people, people, come on. Why do you write? In my craft or solemn art, exercised in the still night, when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my art or craft. Dylan Thomas. Thanks, folks. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.